Heavenly Father, you are so good. So good. And we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we thank you for the life that you freely give to us, but that came at such a cost to you. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have. We are eager for that day when all things will be made new. Lord, help us now to be faithful, to live in expectation of that day, but to faithfully be true to your word and to your testimony. Uh, Lord, to live lives of distinction and of love. Uh, Lord, just strengthen us to be honest with ourselves, to be truthful with ourselves and with this world. Uh, Lord, help us to see clearly and to love. Uh, Lord, help us. Lord, fill us with a greater and greater knowledge of you. Lord, be with us this morning. Guide us and direct us. Lord, call us to the things that you want us to see and to do. Uh, Lord, be with us. In your name, amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. Uh, if you're not, you're still welcome, but we're, we're, we're here in the midst now. We've hit about the halfway point of our series in, in the book of Daniel. And it's been a, a wild ride in so many ways. The book of Daniel is such an amazing, right, narratives of this rebellion and exile that goes on as the Jews are, are taken away. And today, we're in chapter 5, one of the more kind of shocking stories in a lot of ways within Daniel. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll do it on the screen as well, but it's sometimes nice to have Scripture in front of you. But starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousands for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. The king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs give, gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. So the, the narrative, right, this obviously if we've been going through the book of Daniel, it's meant to really remind us of what's been happening previously with Nebuchadnezzar, right? We have a new king all of a sudden, Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, with this glorious feast. I mean, the feasts of Babylon, right? Whew, I mean, this is not just a dinner party. This would be a month-long ordeal of feasting and drinking and 
just the, the celebration that this would be, the, it, uncompared in the ancient world with the Babylonian feasts. But what's going on here is a not-so-subtle comparison of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. We're going to see it all the way through the chapter. One built an empire. Right? We talk about Nebuchadnezzar built was the greatest king. I mean, historians would argue, right? He was arguably the greatest king who ever ruled a kingdom. Compared now to his son, and the only thing he builds, right, is a party. And the centerpiece of the feast, this party that Belshazzar is throwing together, at the very center of it are the accomplishments of his father. He pulls out nothing he got, but brings what his father had accomplished. He brings those vessels from the temple. Belshazzar's only contribution in the narrative, right, is just to profane the sacred and precious vessels of God. And while they are praising these man-made gods of Belshazzar, right, a revelation comes from the Lord. And Belshazzar is terrified. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was terrified, right, by his dream and not being able to interpret it and troubled. Both are terrified and troubled, but Belshazzar is completely undone. He completely gives way. With that language of his legs give way and he collapses is very kind of a euphemism of just he soils himself and is just a heap. Like he is completely undone. It's not that kind of anger, thunder of Nebuchadnezzar where he is, right, troubled, but then he's up, you know, still holds on to his, his throne. Belshazzar is, you can just see this, the weakness in him. He is just a heap on the floor, drunk amongst all of his lords, crying out for help, and the people come in and try to help him, but they can't, and he is perplexed, and he has lost his color. He is, right, just at the point of giving up. A new king, similar in some ways to his father, but very unlike his father in many ways as well. Verse 10, the queen because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters and Chaldeans and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Mom steps into the middle of this, hears the cries, hears what's going on, steps in and reprimands her son. Don't you remember? You should have. There's Daniel. Why aren't you calling in Daniel? Your father, the king, right? And he, she really keeps needling that. Your father, who was the king, he went to Daniel. He entrusted Daniel. He put Daniel in this position of authority. What's wrong with you? Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel one of the exiles of Judah, who the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing, 
and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. There's a bit of a defensive tone to the king, which makes sense. He's just been rebuked publicly in front of all of his lords by his mother. And now Daniel walks into the room, right? And he very much takes that tone. So you're that Daniel, and the way he speaks of him, right, that my father took as a captive from exile. No, that's not who he is. He's more Babylonian than Belshazzar. He has a better track record than Belshazzar. He's been number two in the kingdom for his whole life in Babylon, right? He has great renown, great political emphasis to him. I mean, he's, he's, he's a bigger deal than Belshazzar ever was, right? And he's, oh, you're that exile that my father took, right? Trying to put Daniel in his place right away. And then this idea of, I've heard of you. The narrative, right, trying to show there's definitely a difference between hearing and believing. He's heard the stories. He knows what happened to his father, that humbling that took place last chapter. He knows what happened to his dad, hasn't done anything about it. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways." You have not honored. Daniel is equally as blunt right towards the king, not differential at all. This is not that kind of respectful, submissive Daniel that we saw with Nebuchadnezzar, how quickly he was to praise him or want him to succeed. I mean, with Belshazzar, it is keep your rewards. <laughs> I'm still going to interpret the dream, but this is not, I have no high regard for you. 
and he immediately puts it into context, the writing on the wall. And again, comparing the two kings, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, right? Belshazzar's father, he gave him kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. Everything was given to Belshazzar. Nothing was given to Belshazzar by God, Daniel wants to say. Rather, everything that Belshazzar has, he's inherited from his father. Right? He's walked into his father's kingdom. He has done nothing to earn or deserve anything he has. Nebuchadnezzar right, legitimately had something to be proud of. If you remember that, when he stood over his city, is this not the great Babylon that my hands have built? It, it was. But God loved Nebuchadnezzar so much as to still humble him, to drive him to be a beast of the field, to show him the truth of who God is. And he was humbled. Belshazzar couldn't come close in comparison when it comes to the accomplishments of his father. Belshazzar has nothing to boast in. He should humble himself, right? He should be more humbled than his father. There's the implication of Daniel's the interpretation for him, telling, retelling of the story, right? Like, don't you realize nothing you have is yours? Don't you see everything you have is from God who was given to your father and your father humbled himself? But instead, right, what we see in Belshazzar, someone who has done nothing is the one who is boasting in himself and exalting himself and exalting against the Lord and praising these powerless idols who have done, that have done nothing for him, that have no eyes, that have no ears. They know nothing, but he praises them. He praises these different gods. And so Daniel gives us this ultimate comparison. Nebuchadnezzar, who acknowledges the Most High God, eventually, finally, right, acknowledges his God and leaves his idols. He leaves the God of Babylon, all of these various gods, and puts his faith and hope in the one true God, to Belshazzar, who ridicules the Most High God publicly and turns to all of these powerless idols that his father had given up. Verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Belshazzar, right, was weighed and found wanting. God had numbered the days of his reign and brought it to an end, which is not unlike his father, right? No kingdom is forever. 
And it took Nebuchadnezzar a long time to realize that, that his kingdom would not be forever. God had weighed him on the scales, and he was not enough. The kingdom is divided and given. So the words in the wall is just really numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And the king seems to believe Daniel, and he rewards him and clothes him in the purple, gives him back that third position in the kingdom, but it was an empty gift. As you can see, the narrator gets us right to the end. That very night, Belshazzar dies. The Medes are outside of the walls. And then you, ultimate revealing the folly of Belshazzar, right? Drunk and undone in the presence of his lords while his gates are about to be stormed by his enemy. Right? You can understand the disdain even of Daniel. Right? Keep your rewards. You have no reward to give me. Death is coming for you this very night. And the crashing down of an empire. And it really echoes right, that old Babel in Genesis even. But the new Babel ended its days under the judgment of God under a curse of incomprehensible speech, right, in a divinely imposed division, just like in Genesis. God has divided and brought Babel to nothing. It's a startling story, right, especially coming out of chapter 5 when it feels like everything, right, everything gets restored to Nebuchadnezzar when he acknowledges the Most High God and he gets back his kingdom and Everything is even better than it was before. And you say, okay, well, what will be next for this great king and for his kingdom? Well, what is next is a terrible son, right, who drinks and who parties and who has this disdain for the holy right, and turns to these empty and worthless gods. So in a lot of ways... Right, the story is meant for us to try to compare these two kings. It wants us to look at Nebuchadnezzar and it wants us to look at Belshazzar. It's why they're so closely connected, why you go right from the narrative of Nebuchadnezzar now right to the narrative of Belshazzar with no introductions, no explanation of how did we get here, what's going on. You're supposed to see these two kings and, and compare, compare the way that the kings act and compare the way that God handles them. Right, And we're to see Belshazzar for who he is. You're supposed to disdain him. You read this narrative and you're supposed to not like him. And it's easy not to like this man. He's an arrogant, proud man who turns to false gods in the face of his trouble and is just easily undone. He's proud and he's arrogant. He's boastful in all of the things that are not his to boast in. He's just enjoying, he's reaping the fruits of another man's labor, of a great man's labor, and he boasts in them and feasts in them. But then when anything gets hard, right, he just crumbles and is completely undone. So we're to compare them. We're to see how God humbles and see how they respond, right? You're supposed to see, well, what will? And Daniel, right, keeps implying that to, his, to Belshazzar, right? Like, you should have known this. You should have responded differently. You know the story of your father, and this is the life you've lived. 
And for us as the reader, right, that is asking us the same questions, you saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You saw what happened. What will you do? And when we look close at the story, in the same way that we were supposed to, the shift here in the, the story was we were to identify with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 5, now we're also supposed to identify with Belshazzar in chapter, or in chapter 4, now we're supposed to identify with, with Belshazzar here. An arrogant and boastful, right, in all of the things that we didn't earn, easily undone in the face of trial, quickly turning to things that promise life but fail to deliver. This is the story of Israel. This is the story of us. It's the story of Nebuchadnezzar too, up until that humbling of God. And really, it, 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 we dislike Belshazzar tremendously, right? Like what we talked about, because we see his pride and his arrogance, we dislike that. Nobody likes to hear that. We love to hear about the fall of prideful, arrogant people. But we also notice that if I let myself, right, I see my own issues in Belshazzar. How much of my life has been spent, right, boasting and taking for granted <laughs> things that I did not make, right? My whole life is things that not my two hands did not build, right? I have, I have purchased most things in my life, yet claim them as mine. I, right, walk in the legacies and the foundations that my parents made for me that I don't acknowledge. I claim to be my own man, but I am not. Right? I boast of things. I own things. I act as if I deserve good. I deserve a good life. I should be able to eat and drink whenever I feel like it, even when destruction is right on the doorstep. I do the same things. I distract myself from impending doom. I quickly turn to anything in this life, in this world, that promises me some sort of comfort, especially when I know that hardship is coming. Belshazzar knows his kingdom is coming to an end. He can't be that big of a fool. So he'd rather spend his last days feasting. Well, that's, that's the American motto as well, in a lot of ways. If, I mean, if we're all going to die, let's eat and drink and be merry now. I mean, if things are going to be hard, I mean, I might as well. There's this strange melancholy in America. Even dating back to, there's an interesting quote from Alex Tocqueville, to Tocqueville back in like the 1830s, if you know that. This French writer comes to America, he tours America in the 1830s, and he writes about it, that as he travels through America, what he notices is a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants of this America, right? In the midst of their abundance, they seem dissatisfied and not happy. That's America, so rich. We have so much, yet we are so sad and melancholy, dissatisfied with the things that we have, so quick to turn to anything to distract us, if it's video games to Netflix to exercise to whatever it is. We're just so quick to distract ourselves from the abundance that we have. Like, what's wrong with us? If I'm honest, Right, I easily see myself in Belshazzar, desperate to live up, desperate to be weighed on the scales and found, not wanting, right, but to be found complete, to be found enough. I'm desperate for that. I would love that. I have that intense fear of the judgment that falls on Belshazzar, which is why, right, 
we are all so busy trying to do and accomplish something that gives us meaning, that gives us hope. I think this is what Tocqueville saw in the 1900s and it's, or 19th century, which has continued. This is the American work ethic, right? People talk about this. We praise it like it's a good thing. And in many ways it is, but in other ways it's not, right? This desperate need to work more, to do more, to gain more. I have to have a, I, I can't ever stop. I can't ever praise, right? I have to have a more and enough and enough. I, I'll never be enough. And that constant need to try to make ourselves be able to stand up to judgment, that one day I'll get that judgment that I am something, that I matter, that my life matters. But we know that we're not, we disappoint ourselves, we disappoint others, and so we turn to things constantly to get those judgments, to make ourselves feel better, to feel more accomplished than we really are. But the judgment of God against Belshazzar was not just against him. And this is really clear in the text. This isn't just about Belshazzar's issue. It's also a judgment against his gods, against the gods of Belshazzar. And so you're supposed to be comparing them as well, the gods of Belshazzar against the Most High God. The Belshazzar's gods have been weighed, and they failed the test. They have been found wanting. These gods of silver and gold and bronze and stone could not provide what they promised to provide. Right? They were weighed and found impotent, unable to help, unable to provide any real life or hope to Belshazzar when he desperately needed them. And in the same way, right, our gods have been found wanting. The empty promises of the gods that we serve. Because the nation of Israel, reading the story, right after the exile, they get it. Idolatry is not a hard idea for Israel. Just as they were supposed to see themselves in Nebuchadnezzar, cut off, but a stump remaining. Remember, that was exactly what Isaiah said was going to happen to Israel, is what said was happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and that they would be humbled and they would return. Well, they see the same story in Belshazzar. That's their story and their sin as well. It's the very sin of the Bible all the way going back. Right? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, I mean, this is it, the first commandment over and over, right? You shall have no other gods. That's it. The rest follow. You won't break the rest of the Ten Commandments until you've broken the first commandment. And once you have put something else as God, you will go after it. You will seek it. You turn to it. It owns you. You worship it. And Israel's inability to put away those gods is unbelievable. The gods of their fathers, That's the way that the Old Testament talks about it all the time, that they carried those household gods with them everywhere from Egypt on. They're in the exile. All of a sudden, it's been 40 years, and these gods pop up all of a sudden. You're like, where do they come from? Have you been storing these? They they keep them. They just won't get rid of them. And every time a leader of Israel talks to the people, he says, put away your gods. Put them away. Get rid of them. Burn them. Do something. And they say, we will, we will, we will. And then you find the next generation pulls them back out, dusts them off, and starts worshiping those gods again. These very gods, gods of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. That's what we see in the narrative. Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself before God, puts away his his gods, his idols, and now his son pulls them back out. This is the sin of Israel. It's the sin of us. It's our sin too. We put away our gods, but then... They come back. It's so hard, 
right? We worship all of these different things. We turn good things and we make them ultimate things and we love them and we obey them. It's the sin of idolatry. It's the sin of Scripture where you take something that was meant for good and you turn it into an ultimate thing. Because the problem is it gives you what you want. Like why don't they put away these gods? Because it gives them what they want. Why is it so hard for us to put away the things that we know are bad for us, that we know ultimately defile us because they give us what we want? If I just do this, if I just bow my knee to this, I will feel better. And you do feel better. But it's fleeting. And we see that with the feast. It is fleeting. It is not lasting. It is of incomparably less glory and greatness. The glory it promises, right? It, at the end of it all, it's, it was worthless. And so the text wants us to take a moment, right, to compare our gods with the Most High God. Right? It wants Israel to compare these gods, these idols that they set up with the Most High God. And they want us to do the same, to look at our lives and to look at these idols and compare them. Right? What are the things in your life that you run to for comfort and security? And when things get hard, when the meads are at the door, right, what do you run to? What do you run to for distraction? What do you run to for comfort? What do you run to so quickly, so effortlessly? We're easily undone, right, in the face of this reality of the chance that those idols, we may lose them, right? Our hearts are racked by worry, overwhelmed with despair, right? We're so easily overcome with fear, which begs that question of like, what are you most afraid of losing? That's probably your greatest idol. Like if you lost this, you wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. What are we so, what would undo you that would make you, like Belshazzar, right? Legs go out, soiled in a heap, unable to get up. If you lost this, some of you have lost it. Some of you know what this is easily because the Lord has already taken this from you and you have been humbled much like Nebuchadnezzar. Some of us are Nebuchadnezzars. Some of us are Belshazzars who didn't have to go through that going through the living like an ox. Others of us have. We know what it is, but it's easy to go back right to it now that it's been restored. We're quick to anger, right? What provokes such anger in you? What makes you angry? What makes you feel guilty? Our reactions in life, right, reveal our idols. This is what we see in Belshazzar. His reaction reveals where he puts his hope. And then the gospel again and again, this is what's so great about Scripture, what's so great about Jesus, what's so great about the gospel, right, is that again and again humbles us. The narrative of Jesus humbles us. Just like Daniel, to humble Belshazzar, right, gives him the narrative of Nebuchadnezzar. That's for us too. The narrative of our king humbles us. Again and again, it takes us off of that ledge. It takes us away from the pull of our idols. Christianity, and if you know this, it's the only religion in the world with a self-correcting mechanism that takes you away from the extremes. Because otherwise, every other religion, it just the more and more extreme you get, the more, well, that's good, the more devout you get. And you have the kind of secular and you have the devout and there's conflicts, 
Sure, but there's no self-correcting narrative in there. There's no self, something to bring you back. The gospel, the cross of Jesus, pulls us back all the time and reminds me and humbles me and says, whoa, where have I gone? I took something good and I've turned it into an idol. Well, then Jesus brings it back to me, right? We have to be confronted by this narrative again and again and again. We have to be confronted by the lies and the tyranny of our idols, these gods of silver and gold that we set up. So what are we supposed to do, right? <laughs> the same way within the narrative, and Israel is supposed to read this, you can't just uproot your idols. That's the problem. That's the problem of Israel. It's the problem of Belshazzar. It's the problem of Nebuchadnezzar. It's our problem. It just doesn't work for us to uproot our idols, to identify them, right? You can identify them, and many of us have done that. The Lord continually points out our idols to us, if we're honest, if we're open to him, right, if we're open in community, right, like we can identify idols very quickly. And I think Twin Cities Church has gotten pretty adept at this from the Exodus groups and from lots of things. We can identify our idols, the things that we put too much hope in. If it's our family, our work, all kinds of good things, our religiousness, we can find lots of things that say, yep, I've been putting my hope there, I shouldn't. But it's not enough just to identify them and say they're wrong. They have to be replaced. God's promise to Israel is not that he will just uproot them. He says that in Jeremiah. I will uproot you. I'm going to cut down the tree, but leave the stump. I will pull you up by the roots. I'm going to uproot it, but that's not all. But I will replant you, and I will give you new hearts. We have to replace our idols. It's not enough just to see that they're powerless. Because if I see their powerlessness, I'm disappointed by my idols. All of us have gone through this, right? That instant guilt, the instant racking of like, what have I done? This, this is stupid. What have I been doing? <laughs> I've, been, I've ruined everything. I thought this was going to be good, but it's not. I don't want this anymore. Right? We, we've been there. All of us have been there in our sin, and we've turned to our idol and been like, this, I've made a terrible mistake. We recognize the powerlessness of it. But unless we see something that's even more powerful, more beautiful, better, and replace our affections, replace our loves, those idols grow back. We have to see where true power lies. We have to see things differently. We have to see the true God in comparison to these false gods, and we will stop loving our false gods more and more. Because if you just try to stop doing what you love, you know this, you, you eventually will do it again because you love it. You're avoiding it, and that works for a while. You can get that willpower and the strength to not do something, and you can get change habits, and all those things are really valuable and helpful and good, but it doesn't affect your heart. Paul and Colossians will say, like, religion and all these things, these man-made laws, they have the appearance of wisdom because they're, it's wise. You do need to make laws. You do need to be careful. You do need to set boundaries and all of those things. But they don't have the power to change your heart. They don't help you overcome sin. The only thing that can change your heart is Jesus Christ, is the hope of the gospel, is the only thing that will actually change your heart. So I have to look at my idols, but then I have to compare my idols to Jesus and if we compare, right, and just here even, right, comparing the narrative, this kingdom of Belshazzar, 
what his idols offer him with the kingdom of Jesus, right? Nothing compares. I don't want the kingdom of Belshazzar, the kingdom of Christ, right? None of the outward glamour or glitz, right? Belshazzar's feast has it all. It has everything you would ever want, everything that the world clamors for, power, prestige, the wine, the drinking, the, the, the meal, the, the acceptance, the thousands of people, right? Like it has it all. Jesus, right, in his kingdom, no possessions, relatively few followers, not the thousands of followers that Belshazzar has, the hundreds of wives, the hundreds of concubines, no outward beauty on earth, appearing on earth as a humble carpenter, right? You just think about the life of Christ. What king is this, right? Didn't come as an emperor, didn't come as a king, but as a carpenter and as a teacher. His banquet, his final banquet, right, commemorating his death rather than distracting himself and his friends from his death. So it's such a different feast before his final death. Yet Jesus' life was weighed just like Belshazzar's life was weighed. And it was found to be perfect. It was found to be complete. The weight, and you can feel the weight, right? It's the weight I long for of well done was on Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That was the judgment that Christ received. And the true banquet of Christ is still to come. And on that day, in the place of Belshazzar's nobles, will stand the millions and millions of saints feasting with the Lamb. And at that banquet, there will be no place for our pride. There will be no interruptions, no room for other gods. These idols will finally be freed from and taken away. His kingdom will never be divided. This kingdom will be forever. The narrative of Christ and what he did on our behalf and what he secured for us that is to come, right, it humbles us. It gives us a better picture of life that we can live. It gives us a better picture of what is to come. My idols are not going away, but they will. Whatever this world can offer me, whatever feast this world seems like it can offer, it's nothing. It's nothing in comparison with this ultimate day, with the feast that is coming with the king, purchased by his blood, secured through his resurrection, the hope that I have of that day of feasting in the halls of Zion with my king and with you all, right? And there will be no more pride and there will be no more arrogance and there will be no more weeping. There will be no more fear. There will be no divisions. There will be, I, I long for that day, right? And as we meditate on that day and as we meditate on our king, as we see the better picture of a king and what it really means to have power, our idols get revealed, the lies of our idols are revealed as powerless and worthless, right? What can they possibly offer me? They can't offer me what my king offers me. It's nothing in comparison. The beauty of Christ is eternal. These, this momentary, seemingly beautiful thing that your idol promises you, right? And you know right away how ugly it really is. It's nothing in comparison to this eternal beauty that awaits. Which leads us then to both Repentance and rejoicing. It's got to be both. 
Right? This is what the gospel calls us to. This is what the narrative of scripture calls us to, to repent again and again and again to repent. Right? I need to repent. I'm always in a constant state of repentance because I am so sinful. All right, there's very little in my life that is not, nothing in my life that's not touched by sin. Right? I have to. I have to repent. Without repentance, I'm insincere. I just want what the king promises me. I just want that reward. I don't want to take ownership for my own sin. It's insincere. I mean, being driven to repentance is a good place. But without rejoicing, it leads to despair. And the church is called to rejoice. We're called to repent and we're called to rejoice. We repent of our sins. We turn from our idols. But it can't stop that with that. It can't stop there with just, because this is a cycle. Many of you have been in it. Right? Christianity has become very good at this cycle of constant repentance. You need to repent. Come to church and repent. Come to the Christian community and repent. When you gather with your friends to pray, just pray about all the bad things in your life and keep asking for prayer for all your hardships. We, we, we get really good at that, but it's not enough. We'll stay in that cycle, but we have to rejoice. And when the church gathers together, we rejoice. We have the first fruits of that feast that is to come, and we are to experience that together. We are to sing of that day, speak of that day, speak of the love of our King. Otherwise, right, our hearts wander back so quickly and so easily to the things that promise us life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy. Who are we that you would love us so much, that you would choose us before the world was created to take part in this kingdom, to be with you forever, to experience true love and joy and everlasting peace? Oh, Lord, who are we? So frail and powerless, unable to worship you truly, unable to even turn to you without selfish ambition. Lord, we thank you for that love and that mercy. We confess to you our sins. We confess to you our weakness and our failings. Lord, we confess to you our idols, and we give them to you. We know that their only promise is death, and we'd rather have life. And Lord, we're thankful for you that you have plucked us out of the depths and that we have life in you and that nothing will ever separate us from that, from that hope that we have in you. Lord, strengthen us to know the power of your love. Lord, strengthen us through your spirit to experience your love more and more and more. Continue to confront us and to remind us of who you are and what you have done for us and how great your love is and how much better it is than anything in this world. Lord, how the life that you give, the beauty that you offer is so much more beautiful than the ugliness that our gods on this earth promise. So Lord, continue the work that you've started in us as a church. Continue to draw us towards that day continue to build us in love and unity. Lord, help us not to be so easily satisfied by the things of this world, 
that lead us to being so dissatisfied. But Lord, help us to have peace and hope, confidence, not being tossed to and fro, not being easily undone in this world, but to be steadfast and faithful in our life. Uh, Lord, we need you, so we ask you for your help. In your son's name we pray. Amen.